Emily Ragus is my guest today, and she joins us from Jordan, where she's currently working with the Red Cross. She'll be leaving that role later this year to pursue her PhD studies at the University of Amsterdam. Emily is a trained ER nurse and has vast experience in helicopter retrieval. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you, and thanks so much for having me today. Tell me, how did you end up in Jordan? It's a really long story that actually started with a night shift when I was on call for the helicopters. Yes. And I was asked to come in but to bring my passport, which was really unusual. Um, (laughs) And I sort of walked into our uh, helicopter hangar and I was wearing my flight suit and I was told there's actually been a mass casualty incident involving a lot of Australians And would I consider going to Vanuatu to be part of the repatriation process? So obviously very interested Um, from a disaster management perspective. It was something that I found super interesting and I really wanted to be involved. So, And And where were you based at the time when you got that strange request? I was in Brisbane and Mm -hmm. I was living there and working primarily on the helicopters and occasionally working in the emergency department. Okay. And so what happened? uh, You brought your passport and what happened next? Yeah. So I was with a team of, there were two of us nurses and a doctor, and we got together and started planning with a little bit of information that we had, the, the type of patients that we were potentially going to Uh, get and also what we were likely to see when we arrived Mm. so we knew it was a big bus crash that involved multiple patients primarily uh, older patients from a cruise ship that was going around Vanuatu and they were doing a day trip Mm. so we started thinking about that style of patient and what we needed And then we jumped into the jet and we um, spent the next few hours working out our plan of action um, whilst we were flying to Vanuatu. What was that scene like? Without obviously going into too much detail, what uh, that must have been horrific. Yeah, so when we arrived, it was quite chaotic, as you'd imagine. There were multiple different... uh, aeroplanes all in a row and everybody was there to repatriate patients. Um, We jumped into a local ambulance, which was really just a a jeep, and Mm. made our way to the hospital where all of the patients were situated. And that's where I met um, my patient and we started to stabilise them and we got them what we call packaged. So we got them ready for uh, transport Um, and we took two patients that day back to Australia. Um, Sorry. Go on, go on. It was through that experience that... I started to think about disaster management and think about all of the, the practices that we do and, and how we need to improve our communication, but also how women become more vulnerable during a disaster. So I applied for a Winston Churchill Fellowship. Uh, okay. and Tell I, us about was, that. Yeah, so I was awarded that in 2019. And the Winston Churchill Fellowship is... a a fellowship for the everyday person to learn more about a very specific area that they work in. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. I really wanted to learn more about disaster management and I wanted to understand how that integrates within a humanitarian crisis. So through the Winston Churchill Fellowship, I went to New York and I studied a diploma of humanitarian assistance at Fordham University. Yes. Um, And then from there, I had the opportunity to travel around Europe primarily interviewing people from different United Nations agencies and private aeromedical retrieval companies until I got to Sweden where I had the opportunity to fly with the Swedish National Air Medivac Service, which is a intensive care hospital in the air uh, that primarily goes to disaster management um, scenarios, but also they've done some really large-scale disaster management from the Thai tsunami to the Arab Springs uh, and the Mumbai bombings. They've been able to to be involved in that. So it was all of these opportunities that I started to understand once again where women become more vulnerable and the different layers of vulnerability that we have already within society that cause increased mortality and morbidity within a disaster. So I then uh, came back to Australia and was contacted by the Red Cross to consider applying for a pre-hospital health and disaster delegate role, which is my current role right now. In Jordan. What did, um, yeah. what did, mum, and, what did mum and dad say when you said, I'm moving to Jordan? Well, I think, uh, you know, you understand this idea of the Middle East and especially from Australia. And I, I really had different perceptions of what it would be like here. But I've been blown away by the generosity of the people and I feel incredibly safe. And I think my family back home, uh, they understand now how safe it is here, uh, particularly considering some of the things I've done in the past. I think that they're actually happy about this, this current <laughs> So, So what is it like living and working in Jordan? Well, um, my first experience on day one was to have a driving lesson here because we need to drive as part of our role. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I drive an automatic car back in Australia on what I consider the right side of the road and (laughs) we have quite strict road rules. So day one with a whole lot of sleep deprivation and having travelled for 24 hours the day before, it was quite an interesting experience uh, driving a manual on the wrong what I considered to be the wrong side of the road in extreme traffic with a lot of beeping. So, um, is that the first I, time you'd driven a manual, or had you had experience? Um, I have driven a manual in the past. I've okay. got my license, but I yeah. wouldn't say that. And everybody that knows me back home wouldn't say that I'm particularly great <laughs> at manual. <laughs> yeah, go on, go on. So I hopped out of the driving lesson, and I was really sweating. And but the, I looked across at the instructor. And he had been shouting Arabic words the whole time and he looked like he was drowning in sweat. So oh it was a very unusual start. But um, as bad as my driving is back in Australia, I'm an excellent driver here in Amman. <laughs> I'm extremely confident and um, everybody is surprised at how well I've done. So, yeah, it's um, that's quite an interesting experience. 
The the other aspects of living in Amman I found interesting is the the our idea of uh, Arabic men back in Australia is often quite skewed. Um, and I wonder if there's kind of a level of racism that we we just don't understand because mm-hmm. since arriving here, I found I've been extremely respected. I work a lot with very senior military um, and police. Yes. And the level of respect and understanding um, that I've received from them has been incredible. So I've been, you know, blown away by my own I guess, preconceived prejudices that I thought would occur since arriving here. Um, and it's been a, a, an interesting sort of idea where I've had to look at my own belief systems and why I thought of that. So mm. it's it's been a nice uh, questioning of my own values. So tell us about the work that you're doing with the Red Cross at the moment. So my main role is to try and strengthen from a disaster management perspective the pre-hospital part. So disaster management within health, you have the pre-hospital, so our ambulances that then flow through to within the hospital. So ensuring that our ambulances, our paramedics and our first aid responders are all equipped with the skills required within disasters if if that was to occur. Mm. So Jordan Jordan is a really interesting case study. If you look at where it sits on the map, it's surrounded by a lot of countries from Yemen to Syria to Lebanon and Iraq that are quite unstable. So there's a big international focus to try and keep Jordan very stable and to ensure that there's a lot of disaster management practices that are able to hold up the Jordan health system so that it is capable of responding if there was a large-scale disaster. It, okay. It's not unfathomable, um, unfathomable. Oh, sorry, now I can't say that word. That's a, it's a hard word. It's okay. We know what you mean. <laughs> for, us, for us to think about a, a major incident where there would be a lot of casualties from mm. the surrounding wars to come across and uh, the health system needs to be able to accommodate that. What's the and, population uh, of Jordan? Uh, Seven million, and then mm. there's three million uh, refugees. So mm. they're extremely accommodating for particularly the Palestinian refugees that have come across, as well as the Syrian refugees and people from Yemen. Uh, they've got a strong history of uh, accommodating the refugee crisis from surrounding countries. Have um, Have there been any language barriers? Um, trying to trying to communicate with with locals. Sure, there there is some language barriers. I have found that the majority of people can speak some level of English. Okay. Yeah. The the thing is, is I have the most brilliant health field officer who has come in and and saved the day multiple times for <laughs> <Okay>. me. <laughs> Um, and I also find that many of the people here, they really want to try and practice their English. Really? So, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. The, the one thing that I found different in Jordan compared to when I was in Borneo is I think in Asia, they're so used to hearing the Australian accent that I never had any trouble being understood. Yeah. Whilst here, I have to put on almost a quasi- American accent so that people understand me. Is that right? Is that yeah. 
Ooh. Are there um, met many other, um, have you met any other Australians while you've been over there? Um, I have met quite a few Australians here, actually. I've met more Australians here than Borneo, which mm. is why I was surprised that I'm. Uh, they have so much difficulty understanding me. But you know the Australian accent. We we tend to cut off all of our words and put O's on everything. <laughs> and it, it, it does, does make stand it out. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned Borneo. When were you there? Uh, prior to Jordan, I was in Borneo. So I was in Kuala Lumpur for three months. And then I went to Kota Kinabalu in Sabah, which is the Malaysian end of Borneo. So okay. Borneo is split between multiple countries. And I was in the, the Malaysia section, so just near Mount, Mount Kinabalu. Emily, I'd like to see your passport stamps. Sounds yes. as though you've been doing a lot of travelling. Uh, <laughs> I think, <laughs> over, I think I'm one of the, the few Australians that's been able to travel the, the whole time through the pandemic, which has been... Uh, quite an opportunity and an interesting experience. I was going to ask you about that. So how has um, how has COVID um, interrupted uh, your work overseas? It, it has had some extreme interruptions to the work. So, for instance, I was meant to leave Australia in February of 2020. However, I didn't leave until September because I was on call the whole time as Malaysia was shut down. And then when I did arrive in Malaysia, I obviously did my two weeks hotel quarantine, which I've now done multiple times. Nightmare. Absolute nightmare. Uh, But then from there, I got caught in a further lockdown in Kuala Lumpur. So it meant that I wasn't able to spend a whole six months in Sabah, in Borneo. Yes. Um, And it also meant that when I was dealing with a lot of the people that I was meant to be working with, we had to do everything through an online medium. So, for instance, one of my big uh, roles within uh, the Red Cross is I'm meant to go into uh, different say refugee camps or different aspects within the community and teach first aid. Unfortunately, the COVID um, situation has meant that I haven't been able to do that. So we actually integrated all of that training onto an online format, which was really nice because it meant that we could still actually do some of the training. We just just, uh, were able to see all of these people's faces on their phones rather than in real life. So we had to be slightly more innovative than what we would be normally. So it sounds like you've bounced around literally between country to country to country over many years. So, so where, where's home for you or it just, it just depends. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So I think since 2019, I have lived for three months in New York. I've lived for a few months in Rome, in Italy, I have been all over Europe twice. I went back and taught for Fordham University in Geneva on the International Diploma of Humanitarian Assistance at the end of 2019. Then I was in Malaysia in 2020. And then for 2021, I've been in Jordan, Malaysia, and I will be in the Netherlands. Yes. And now at some point this year, you're about to go to Amsterdam. Yes, from November. So you are a 2021 Sir John Monash Foundation 
scholar. Tell us about how that scholarship came about. So when I was in Vanuatu, that's when I started thinking about these gender inequalities. But through the Diploma of Humanitarian Assistance at Fordham, I became friends with a lot of different people, all who either worked for large NGOs, the United Nations, or the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Mm -hmm. And we started talking about gender and the role of gender. And it made me really interested in thinking about how does gender-based violence actually get perpetuated during a disaster? And then COVID hit and we started to see these really rising rates of violence that were occurring towards women. So I, I understood that gender-based violence, it doesn't occur just because of a disaster. It's something that's underlying in society due to these vulnerabilities. And then with these vulnerabilities, people actually become more violent towards women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was through all of this that I became very interested in looking at my PhD because I do have an unusual background of both health, disaster and humanitarian aid. Uh, and I felt that there would be an interesting perspective to look at a, a gender within disaster management PhD. So I I wanted to apply for a scholarship that was recognizing the fundamental ethos that I that I feel that I have and I was really drawn to the Sir John Monash scholarship because it does focus on building up tomorrow's leaders and that's something that I'm passionate about. I really think that leadership you're not just born with that there's skills that you learn and you can bring about this really beautiful empathetic leadership style and that's something that I felt was part of the idea of the Sir John Monash Mm. so that's why I decided to apply for that scholarship specifically within the area of gender and disaster and so the um Emily, the University of Amsterdam, what made you choose that institution? Yeah, it was interesting because you, the freedom that you get for the Sir John Monash, where you can apply for anywhere in the anywhere, world. Anywhere in the amazing. world, yeah. Yes, yeah. So I wanted to think about what exactly within a education facility did I want And one of the big things was I wanted to live within an environment that was aiming to improve gender equality and and they had strong gender equality practices and the freedom to have, you know, very innovative thought around these ideas. And the Netherlands is a country that's really aiming to improve their gender targets. They're super innovative and very hardworking to try and look at inequalities within their own social structures so I started to look at the University of Amsterdam and then I had the opportunity to discuss with multiple academics about where they would go and we kept coming back to this idea of uh, the University of Amsterdam and what they are trying to achieve where their focus ideas look at inequalities and they also look at um, global health, which are the two main aspects that uh, mm. my PhD is focusing on. It's a, it's a great choice. It sounds like a, a wonderful uh, university. Yeah, I'm really excited to start. And I've had so much support already from my supervisors 
So I'm really fortunate and looking forward to it. So with your PhD, what are some of the questions or the question that you hope to answer as a result of your research and your study? So the way I want to do it is I really want to, I want to understand what gender norms play into perpetuating poor health outcomes for women within climate related disasters. So, you know, climate change is creating increasing weather systems and we've seen that globally. Mm -hmm. We also know that women are disproportionately affected by disasters. So I would like to understand further how the two interconnect and what that means for the health outcomes of women. So how that relates to increasing gender-based violence, um, increased maternal mortality rate, uh, increased um, inability to access services, and then uh, how they don't, they're not empowered through this process. So when it comes to your uh, study program, how long do you think that will take? Is that, uh, say, two or three years? So it, it's, it looks like it will be three and a half to four years. Oh, wow. The reason okay. being yeah. it's slightly longer is I'm wanting to do two field um, ethnographic studies where I'm immersed in communities that have strong gender norms so look at almost gender stereotyping and they also are susceptible to climate change okay amazing yeah I'm excited provided all things go well Emily and let's let's just uh, fast forward a three or four years you get your you finish your PhD what's the plan then what do you what do you do with um, with all of your newfound research and skills what's the plan so part of my phd is i'm very keen to create a framework that can interlock into already pre-existing disaster management frameworks mine will give a much stronger gender lens so when we're looking at disaster management from all of the phases from preparedness through to response and recovery there's a stronger gender lens in that embedded into those aspects uh what we know that when we can strengthen women within disasters a whole community is strengthened so i would like to apply the knowledge that i've learned from the phd and be able to create really adaptable policy changes uh, from a whole array of different organizations to try and improve their practices can we go back many, many, many years to when you were, um, well, maybe not that many, <laughs> when you <laughs> when you when you were growing up? Um, so, so tell us about your uh, your background, where you grew up, where you where you went to school, your your family situation. Give us give us some insight. Yeah, so I am. Uh, my grandparents were refugees that came across from Europe after the Second World War, and. Mm-hmm. I think that that really put this idea in my brain about how fragile our home can be because it can always be taken away from us in a situation of war, which made me really interested in health. So I grew up as a country kid in Western Australia in a single parent family mm-hmm. and I have two sisters um, and I always knew that I wanted to go into some aspect of health because I really felt this strong idea about health inequalities and how we can improve them for people. 
And it initially started off about health inequalities for people from the country, which I think is why I was drawn to the remote area nursing as well as on the helicopters. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of those aspects, we are bringing tertiary level healthcare uh, back to to really remote areas and I think that that's really important especially in a place like Australia where we've got such long isolated areas between health services so Um, when you so when you finish school uh what what did you do what um I'm presuming you went straight into university to study what yeah so after after high school I went straight to Queensland University of Technology and I studied my Bachelor of Nursing there okay. and went straight into critical care nursing because it was the area that I was most interested in. And I was really fortunate to get a placement at the Royal Brisbane in the intensive care unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did that for a few years and I did lots of really crazy travel where I ended up in the Trans-Siberian alone in, in Mongolia and <laughs> and walked across Spain 900 kilometres and, you know, did all That's these things. That's an entirely things. different podcast. Uh, absolutely, yes, yes. <laughs> we'll be out of time, yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, I was really, I think that's where my mum learnt just to to breathe through some of my experiences because otherwise they were going to scare her too much. But I <laughs> I came back and um, from from spending quite a bit of time in India and I really wanted to get into emergency nursing and that's when I pushed myself from that sort of critical care and remote area into emergency nursing. And I've never looked back. I mean, it's it's an amazing backstory. How did you end up, um, I think you've just about answered that, into um, the, the helicopter work? Yeah, so I saw it was a job that was advertised. And in Queensland, you normally have paramedics on the helicopters. Mm-hmm. However, they were looking at reintroducing nurses as well. And it was a role that I had never even considered until I saw it advertised and then knew exactly at that moment that that was a role that I wanted to apply for. Really? So, yeah, it was a mixture of all of the aspects that I love, you know, remote area nursing, austere environments, uh, looking at the Australian healthcare system from a low resource perspective, but then the adventure side of it. And it was it was quite interesting because I really underestimated my fear of heights. And I think, <laughs> I, I think I've um, gotten through that now after a few ex- hairy experiences where I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do anymore oh, when we were... 500 feet and the door was getting opened on the helicopter. I mean, it's not the, it's not the most uh, comfortable of, I've been in a few helicopters, but they're not the most comfortable of um, uh, rides. Oh, no. you, I mean, you really must have uh, gritted your teeth and uh, just thought, well, this is, this is my job. I'm doing it. Absolutely. So part of my role was to be an air crewman when what that means is, you help the pilot uh, guide them. So you're an extra set of eyes to guide them down to land. So you're wearing your harness, you are clipped to the roof, and then you open the door and you stand outside of the helicopter whilst it's midair. 
and you get onto comms and you start explaining where there's trees, if there's any power lines, mm-hmm. anything like that, that potentially could be a hazard to landing. Now, the first time I did that, I was almost a bit like, you know, when you put a cat into water, <laughs> I was <laughs> I was really, it took everything inside me to actually open the door and step outside. But the feeling of freedom that you get when you are standing out there and you see the beautiful Australian landscape and you know you're doing work that has so much meaning, it it was an incredible experience in the end. Are you normally strapped in? If you, you know, if if the door if the door is opened, are you are you in a harness or what are you doing? You just hold, yeah, holding. yes, yes. It's very safe. Okay. There's so okay. many safety checks. So you are strapped into a harness, and the harness is strapped to the roof. And you do have a quick release. So if something was to happen, for instance, if the helicopter was to crash into water, you've got the mechanism to quickly release as well. Um, but we do a lot of safety checks. So, And we also did a lot of safety training. For instance, I did the helicopter uh, underwater training. Yes. Where it was to for, for escaping if there was a crash. I've had uh, friends do that. It's petrifying, and mm. <laughs> I uh, I unfortunately did it with a professional diver. So he was he took to the whole process Would with a lot it. more rigor than what I did. But we he managed to get me through it, which was really nice. Emily, I'm exhausted. You you have had an amazing life. Um, it's it's a wonderful career you've had. There's so many so many great stories. I think we we might need a an entirely different podcast to catch up on um, some of your travels. Um, But we're out of time today, so I can only thank you for giving us an insight into the wonderful career you've had. And we will look forward with much interest to uh, your your future endeavours and and best of luck with with the PhD um, later this year. And uh, it'd be great to catch up again. So thank, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. No, thank you. And thanks so much for having me.